Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Jack Letts has been dubbed Jihadi Jack by British media. After he left the UK to travel to Syria, where it's alleged but rejected by his parents that Jack Letts joined ISIS. Jack Letts has been held in a Kurdish prison since 2017. He's been stripped of his UK citizenship and refused a return to Britain. So his mother and father, his father John, a Canadian citizen, are actively petitioning the Canadian government this week to provide their son due process and an opportunity to come to Canada and, if needed, stand trial for joining a terrorist organization. Jack Letts' remaining citizenship is Canadian. So, as I said, Mr. Letts, John Letts, his dad, this week in Canada, is actively petitioning the federal government to allow his son to come to Canada. John Letts and his wife Sally have been charged, were charged, with entering into a funding arrangement for the purpose of terrorism because they sent their son money in Syria. They were sentenced to 15 months in prison, suspended for 12 months. This is my fourth interview since 2018 with John Letts. And John... uh, First of all, what kind of reception are you receiving? Lots of questions for you in this half hour. But what kind of reception are you receiving from the Canadian government to your expressed wish, a desire, that Canada open the door to your son to allow him back into this country as a Canadian citizen and face trial if that's what the country decides? What kind of reception? Well, a completely closed door, I suppose, Roy. I mean, we've had zero contact uh, with the Conservatives. They aren't willing to speak to us. And one, I think, probably quite brave liberal MP has um, has spoken to us. Um, we've had a few members of the NDP speak to us, and it was with Nathan the Greens, but the reception is pretty frosty. On the other hand, civil society groups are very interested in speaking to us, Amnesty International and some other of the liberties groups who are able to see beyond the um, the media stories that have been put out. So overall, I do feel optimistic um, that we're making some inroads, but um, nothing from the government. I mean, I just it, want to have a chat. I want five minutes with them to try to explain why, how the media has, has distorted this, including our own trial, by the way. Um, but, you know, we get nothing. If you don't talk to someone, they can't uh, make a fair decision, I think. There's something I want to say here, and I want you to uh, address this, please, and then we'll get on to the other questions. And I think it's germane to the entire issue. Foreign Affairs Canada was in communication with you while your son was in custody, uh, was being held by the Kurds. There was communication between you and Foreign Affairs Canada about your son potentially coming to Canada, correct? Yeah, correct. How far did that go? How far did that go? Well, at, at the very beginning, when we approached the Canadians based in London and, and also in Ottawa, they were really supportive. They said, well, any Canadian held abroad who's in these conditions is, is yeah, we will help. Um, we'll reach out to the Kurds, et cetera, et cetera. But at that point, uh, the Kurds were making it very clear that Jack was, well, they called him a hero because he'd stood against ISIS. So it was a very different story. So they, they thought it was fine. So they said, we're going to help you. We're going to send people to get him. Well, they didn't actually say that. They said, stand by, because we're going to find ways of, of bringing him back or getting him to the U.K. 
Uh, and I know that there was a very high-level meeting held um, in Iraq to discuss returning all the Canadians who were there. And then at one point, and we never quite figured out why, but I suspect it's when the British got involved, when, when, they, when they started to hand, when, when the Kurds offered to hand Jack over to the British to have him sent back to the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, the shutters came down, and then the messaging we've had ever since from uh, Global Affairs is, it's just we have no consular access. It's too dangerous. It's basically exactly what the British line is. So, so um, John, when I put together Jack Letts and these component parts, and they're all headline stories, your son's name is a headline, Jack Letts, Jihadi John, ISIS, no, Canada. Let me finish. John, when I put okay. those words together, the immediate response from people who are asked whether your son should come to Canada is no. Yeah, I, I fully understand. It, it all depends on the phrasing, doesn't it? You just this is why I'm asking you to address that. Yes, I, I'd love to. Go ahead. Um, well, you just used the word Jihadi John instead of Jihadi Jack. Jihadi John. Sorry, is, sorry, John. Well, I you heard just Jihadi said Jihadi John. Jack. Yeah, go ahead. That's certainly what some of the MPs who stood up in the House condemning him, they confused Jack with this Jihadi John who did despicable things. Yes, yes. That's horrible. But, you know, that word jihadi is very, very loaded, and it was invented by a, a Sunday Times journal. But when your, son, when your son is associated with ISIS, and then the question is, or the, 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 the point is made, that John Letts is in Canada today, this week, trying to persuade the Canadian government to open the doors to Canada to Jack Letts, who, you know, the story is, was associated with ISIS, and your son gave a BBC interview, and he said he's not innocent. He wanted to engage in a suicide bombing in a car. It's hard to make an argument that he didn't join ISIS. People hear that, and they say, how can, how can he possibly say that he didn't join ISIS? If all of that was true, Roy, I'd be feeling the same way they do. But if you want me to try to counter it, I, I need a second to try to, sure. to address Sure. Go ahead, John. I mean, it goes way back to even your introduction. I mean, we want to talk about our trial. What you said from our trial is actually not correct. You know, you know I'm, I'm so deeply grateful, as you know, to even be on your program. But I do relish the idea of trying to change a few um, facts that, are, that are, are accepted as facts. They're not facts. Sure. Go ahead. Um, well, for example, in our trial, we were actually found not guilty of, of sending money to Jack. We never sent any money to Jack, right? Jack never got any money from us. We went to the police for help to help him get out. We spoke to the British police. They said, this is horrible, and yeah, it's terrible. And we said, look, we are the ones who tried to get him back, and we said, we'll hand him to the British police. And when it, and, and they said, yes, yeah, send him a 1,000 pounds, which is about $2,000. And when we tried to do that, they arrested us. And when it went to court, we were in the highest court of the land in the Old Bailey in the UK, and we were found not guilty of sending money for the purposes of terrorism, because they said two things. One, he was being chased by ISIS. He'd been put on trial by ISIS. He stood against ISIS. He said quite clearly, I disagree with their creed, that they're not the right type of Muslim. This is wrong. Plus, the police had said they could send the money. But there was three years earlier, my wife sent 378 Canadian dollars to a refugee family in Lebanon. That's true. And that's what they said, oh, well, there was a risk that there was reasonable cause to suspect that some of the funds that you sent to Lebanon could theoretically have been used for terrorism. So we were found not guilty of the main charges, but that third charge, absolutely correct. They said that could theoretically have been used for terrorism, never got to Jack. 
So I never sent a penny to Jack. And I can tell you right now, Roy, I would never send a penny to my son if I suspected he was involved with anything like that. I would never have done that. Okay, so I have to take a break here. But can you in just one minute tell me what makes you so unequivocally sure that your son never joined ISIS? You haven't talked to him well, for a I year, right? Well, I can say, show me some unequivocal evidence that he did, because that interview is the only bit of what people are claiming is evidence. That interview with BBC, and there was one with ITV. Now, we've gone over that with a fine-tooth comb. That was done with a pistol at his head. I mean, to me, evidence obtained under torture is not reliable. I think anyone in the military... Lawyers, they all know that if you torture someone, they're going to say everything you want. And Jack told the only lawyer who's ever been allowed in there, remember, he's never been charged with any offense. The Kurds at the beginning said he was a hero who worked against ISIS, not fighting, but by talking, and he was never been charged. And so, you know, if he's charged, prove some evidence. But so, so this video was obtained after torture. I mean, he's held in a cage. He's tried to kill himself. You know, they're malnourished. They're, they're putting, he's terrified of electricity. All of this has come out. And GAC, sorry, Global Affairs, knew all about this almost four years ago. Uh, John, your son never lived in Canada. He has Canadian citizenship because of you and the fact that you're Canadian. His British citizenship was revoked, and the U.K. does not want your son back in the country Explain that to us, please, and why should Canadians, why, why should Canadians listening to this program right now, and I don't doubt that you love your son, you're a father, why should Canadians have empathy for your son, or for you, or for your wishes? Why? I don't know which of those seven questions I should answer first, but my wife and I are both Canadian. My wife came to Canada when she was a child, so we're all Canadians. The first thing I did was run to the embassy and register Jack. I didn't have the money to come for extended long holidays. I was working. I've been a farmer and other things in, in Britain. And it was difficult. So we came over as often as we could on holidays. I think Jack is as Canadian as, I don't know, a third of the country isn't born in Canada. So I think he's he's Canadian. I mean, you know, if you, if you, he always used to say he was three-quarters Canadian because his mother was half and I was full. So he very much identified with Canada, but yeah, you know, I think I'm a, I have a British passport now. I'm a dual citizen. The fact that I live in the UK doesn't, I think, take away the fact that I'm still very Canadian. If you want to have this conversation in French, I can do that too. So I don't have a problem with any of that. And and I think that uh, the plan was always for us all to come back to Canada. That was the plan as I got a bit older and the boys wanted to come back. So I'm I'm not too worried about his identity there. His British citizenship, I'll tell you how that was stripped. Um, we were sitting in the kitchen having a cup of tea, and uh, there was a, a bang on the door, and a motorcycle courier showed up and threw a package, literally hit me in the, in the face with it, and drove off. And we opened it, and it said, Jack, you're no longer British. And that's it. They just banish you based on a secret decision made by a SIAC committee, which you have no representation on. And Jack's, of course, locked in solitary confinement in a cell. So how are we going to speak for him? How's he going to defend himself? Would, would, the British, would the British government not have the means to assess whether I, your sorry, son Jack became a member of ISIS, John? I, I couldn't. The phone, I'm sorry. If, could I ask you to repeat the question? Yeah. Would the British government not have the means to assess whether your son, in fact, became a member of ISIS? And whether his, and you say he, the, the, the interview was done with a gun to his hand, but Ed, wouldn't the British government have the ability to assess the veracity of the entire situation? Yes, I think they would definitely have the capacity, and so would the Canadian government. 
But I think history shows that uh, people do get tortured in those areas, and that's certainly starting to come out now with the, with the Kurds. And I think anybody would accept that in the past, these types of uh, abuses happen in prison camps where there's the Red Cross isn't even allowed in. I have not even heard from Jack in a year. Uh, to be honest, Roy, I don't know he's even alive. Um, I don't know if his brain is still intact. The, the, the information coming out is that all these prisoners are being drugged. You know, I, I have no idea what's going on, but I can tell you there are abuses in these prisons and these camps in the Middle East. Okay. I, I don't think anybody would question that. And th- there's no doubt. I mean, well, he, the only two people who've ever been in to see him is a conservative British MP, and Clive Stafford-Smith is a very respected human rights lawyer so it's a group called Reprieve. And they both said, as soon as the guard left the room, he leaned over to, to Clive and said, I'm saying what they tell me to say, and I know what will happen if I don't say it. Okay, let me read and you something. he was questioned in what they called the tortured room. Now, to me, you know, he doesn't have access to a lawyer. He doesn't have access to medical treatment. How can you, what do I need to tell? Yeah. What do I need to show to prove I, that? I understand, John, I understand what you're saying, but people are going to respond and say, well, he made his way voluntarily to Syria. And, and, but let me just read you something from the Crown Prosecution Service online in the UK. A married couple from Oxford have today, 21 June, been found guilty of sending money to their Daesh-supporting son in Syria and sentenced to 15 months' imprisonment, suspended for 12 months. So that's from the British Crown Prosecution Service. Yeah, and we have a legal challenge to them to try to change that messaging because the judge himself said that this is, these people are not terrorists. You know, they were ne- never supported anything like that. The claim that he's a Daesh supporter, I have no doubt, Roy, he went, clearly, he went into Syria and he's a Muslim. Now, it's like, what can I, what would be convincing evidence for anybody that he wasn't involved? What would I need to show? I don't know what I could. He's a Muslim and he went to Syria. But, you know, a lot of people went to Syria. If, you know, if Christians go to help in the disaster zone, nobody questions it. If Muslims go to Syria to try to help after a civil war where there are 10 million refugees and millions of people killed, well, everyone says, well, they must have gone because they're terrorists. Well, you know, I would like to question my son about all that. All I know is that I know he went to study in Kuwait, and then he winds up in Syria. I have a lot of questions, but I also know that he phoned us regularly and, and said, I'm the same. I don't, I'm not involved with any of this crap. And, you know, and he said very clearly, you know, actually, it's very interesting. Well, I don't think I've ever told you this one. What I find really, what I find really interesting is that our foreign affairs department, federal foreign affairs department, was in touch with you, and actually communicated with you about your son Jack coming to Canada, then suddenly stopped. I'd like more information on that, and uh, there, there's, there, that's an open-ended situation that deserves more, more explanation. How do you, and we have a minute here, John? How do you expect this reality, this situation, your mission to Canada? How do you realistically expect it to conclude? Well, I'd like, I think it will only be about legal action and public pressure. We have an action going through to the federal court. I, I believe in the Canadian Constitution, and I believe in our Charter of Rights, and I also believe in our security services. You know, there are four men and, and loads of kids and some women, and, uh, you know, I, I think we can probably assess those who are guilty and those who are not. You know, what if he is innocent? Is it really okay to keep a Canadian detained. He's been in prison now for five years without any charges against him. What if he is innocent? Is that okay for Canadians to be kept that way? Do we expect our government to at least check to see he's not being tortured, check to see he's alive? I'd love them to tell me if he's alive or not. 
You know, I think the Canadian government, as a Canadian, I expect the government to help me a little bit. I don't look for everything, but, um, you know, and he made a choice, as you say, but it's a stupid choice. He was 18, he had quite bad OCD, which many people have, and he was trying to be the best Muslim he could be. I do not believe he joined ISIS. He's repeatedly said he was against their creed. They right. put him on trial three times, um, and, and he said, I don't, I have I don't to, accept your system. John, I have to stop here because of the clock. The issue of sexual assault, sexual abuse, harassment in Canada's military, that has been and continues to be a major, major story and a great area of concern. There are developments that have taken place. More than 100 cases of sexual assault and harassment may be turned over to Canadian civilian police forces. Colonel Michel Drapeau joins us of Michel Drapeau Law Office, mdlo.ca, in Ottawa, the only law practice in Canada dedicated to military matters and issues and charges. Colonel Drapeau, thank you very much for the time. What are your thoughts on turning over more than 100 cases, potentially sexual assault cases, from the military police to civilian police forces? What are your thoughts on that? I think it's the only way to do it. Uh, I mean, up until 1998, the military did not have jurisdiction over sexual assault. Uh, That was the sole purview of civilian tribunals. And there is nothing that I know that makes the military equipped, experienced, independent, or otherwise better qualified than civilian tribunals to do that. In fact, this is not where the forte is. I mean, they're there to manage violence, to be able to protect our freedom, both at home and, and abroad. They're not in there to be doing penal justice. I mean, this is why we have court in, in, in Canada with an independent judiciary, trained lawyers, defense lawyers, and prosecutors, and, and also victims of crimes that are prosecuted before civilian tribunals. They're protected under the Charter of Rights for Victims of Crimes. It does not exist in the military because the military has yet to put it into force, despite the fact that the act was voted by Parliament in June 2000, uh, 2019. So it, so victims uh, whose case is prosecuted before a court-martial is strongly disadvantaged and discriminated against because she has no protection that is offered under the Charter for Victims of Crimes. Military lawyers uh, may be good, and they know the military law, and they know the code of service discipline, but they're not particularly uh, skilled or experienced uh, as a civilian lawyer who does nothing else than this in civilian court. And what's important is the independence uh, of these uh, of, of the military justice system. Madame Deschamps, uh, retired justice Madame Deschamps, when she did her study back in 2015, said a significant number a majority of victims of sexual assault in the military don't report the crime because they don't have a sense of confidence in A, the military police, and B, the capacity or independence of the military justice system. So more reason to turn it over to the civilian tribunals and civilian authorities such as municipal, provincials, and, and federal police forces. Right. So we now also have two complainants who alleged sexual assault against male members of the military, uh, they allege their investigations were shut down because the male members of the armed forces refused to answer questions. And one woman said investigators recommended laying charges. However, prosecutors refused to move forward 
because the only evidence was what the accused man would testify to, and he refused to talk. I mean, refusing to answer questions may be an, uh, an option for a suspect or even an accused person, but there are usually consequences for such a refusal in the real world. Well, I mean, in the real world, I mean, let's go back to, uh, I don't know, Al Capone. I mean, I am anything but surprised that an accused, particularly one that is as a sense of guilt, uh, will exercise his right to silence. So there's nothing new here. Most lawyers you you speak to, including myself, if I'm consulted by an individual who's facing and being asked to testify uh, with the military police, the first advice he would be giving is to keep your mouth shut. You have a right to remain silent, do so. So it's nothing but a surprise to do that. An experienced and skilled and determined police forces will look at collecting evidence in any in every other way, including taping perhaps communication between an alleged offenders or, or following him or receiving a statement from by you know bystanders or whatever. I mean it'd be a number of, the civilian police spent all of their times investigating crimes, right. prosecuting crimes without having the offenders saying a single word. What I found really interesting here is the prosecutors backed off. They refused to move forward because the only evidence was what the accused man would testify to. And as you say, and rightly, he was probably, well, certainly advised by his lawyers not to talk. But that shouldn't, that shouldn't make the prosecutors back off. In fact, it should be more of a, you know, an incentive to go further. An exactly. incentive, in fact, to bring the issue to trial and let the evidence, it may be one-sided, but let the victims and any, anything else that comes along, people in which you would have confided into, or there may be medical evidence, uh, there might have been swab taken and whatever, let this evidence pre- be presented in a court of law. I mean, this is how our system works, so I'm not against having rights uh, for, for offenders because they are presumed innocent until found otherwise by a court. Yeah. But this is not a license to say, well, let him go because the poor guy didn't, you know, would, would answer our request and would answer, I mean, would not reply to our request for a Well, everybody would do that and all investigations yeah, would be dropped. Exactly. And I have a person that I'm representing that is facing exactly that, where the, uh, the two individuals, two warrant officers, have decided not to follow through to a request by the military police to show up. And we made a complaint of this before the Military Police Complaints Commission, and we're awaiting the result of that particular complaint. What kind of cooperation? You were in the military for 30 years. You were a senior officer. What kind of cooperation will civilian police receive from members of the CAF? I, I would say 150% cooperation once the word is given. There's one thing the military is good at. They obey order, and it's a good thing that they do. Uh, because they are subject to civil control. The moment the chief of the defense staff uh, says, or the deputy minister, or the minister says, this is, not, this is now what we're going to do, and we've had this by the uh, Ministry of National Defense. As far as I understand, about 140-some-odd cases will be transferred to the, uh, to the civilian authorities. Now, the military police and the military prosecutor will probably not like that because part of their job, part of the future their promotion and so on and so forth would be taken away in the process. Uh, but this is a lawful order uh, given by civil authorities, and and it can and will be implemented. 
at the military, reluctant as it may be, some members of the military, reluctant as they may be, they'll follow suit. And I think overall, uh, the, the, the senior, the more, uh, the, the, the more experienced members of the, of the military quite understand the time has come, in fact, to turn the page, to do something different, and, and to depossess the military from the responsibility of prosecuting sexual assault. For the sake of the forces, their reputation, their capacity to recruit and to retain members, and to have a sense of confidence from not only the Canadian public, but people abroad, if they were to be deployed on, on, uh, on, on peacekeeping forces, knowing that these individuals are not only soldiers first, but they are citizens of the world, and they respect the law, and they respect the human rights of everybody, and that includes uh, people of, of you know, whatever sexual orientation they may be, they have a right to their dignity, protection of their, of their, of their private lives, and, and certainly to be able to serve without being subject to any form of harassment or assault. Sherry Benson Podolchuk is a retired RCMP officer, spoke with me uh, years ago, 10, 12 years ago. And uh, Sherry was on this program quite regularly. We talked about the experiences she'd had, how she'd been abused as a member of the RCMP, years of workplace bullying and harassment. She's a motivational speaker and consultant who helps those who are dealing with workplace bullying. And one of her books is Women Not Wanted. Sherry, it's good to talk to you again. Um, Thank you. Yeah. When you when you hear that cases, over 100 cases, may be transferred from the military police to civilian police for investigation, and you had these terrible experiences, really terrible experiences, as a woman RCMP officer, as you were being mistreated, and in fact left uh, to your own devices when you needed emergency help from your fellow officers, do you have, and I'll ask you in a moment to just share with us some of the things that happened to you, but do you have a sense of confidence that the civilian police forces will do the job that is required of them to properly pursue the sexual assault allegations that come out of the military? Uh, well, it's always a pleasure to talk with you, Roy, and thank you very much for you know bringing attention to this because clearly there nobody's been listening and something needs to be done. Obviously, there is no trust within the military, and you can't, it's been proven, you can't investigate your own. My concern would be the fact that some of these cases were were dismissed or not enough evidence, or like what what's the, the colonel had mentioned, that the, the silence of the offender made the case they didn't want to proceed, which is ridiculous. So you wouldn't want that type of uh, attitude to influence a, a new... This, uh, to, to, when it influenced the new investigators while they're proceeding with the case. And we've seen historically, unfortunately, that in some cases with, in, with uh, police forces, not just the RCMP, but different police agencies, they're not investigating, they're not taking the victim seriously, maybe they were drugged, they ask questions like, what were you wearing, which, may, which really, really... Uh, you know, re-traumatizes the victim because the victim of sexual assault has done nothing, and I repeat, nothing that warrants such a a violation of their body and their, and their, uh, their sense of safety. So in answer to your question, I, I, I'm glad they're removing it from the military because they, you just can't investigate your own, but I do have concerns 
about the, the police agencies now. And one thing I would really hope is that anybody who's investigating, or if they have a task force, let's say, Roy, that they have a trauma-informed approach so that when they're dealing with the victims, they are able to speak to them from a trauma-informed approach so as not to re-victimize them. Yeah. Now, the RCMP issue mm. of yeah. sexual harassment, sexual assault, abusive behavior toward women, officers by male officers, and women civilian employees, that went on for years in the 1980s. There were debates in Parliament about what to do about it, and, and nothing was done. Literally, nothing was done. And then along came the early 2000s and Catherine Galliford, and you had, you had preceded all of this. By, by sharing your stories and writing your book, Women Not Wanted. But along came the early 2000s, and eventually and grudgingly, the government mm-hmm. and the RCMP r- agreed that these terrible things had happened, malicious and, and, and assaultive behaviors had taken place. The $100 million class action lawsuit was settled. I'm not sure that everybody's been paid yet. Mm-hmm. But, but uh, remind us, please, of what happened to you when you were an officer in the RCMP? What happened to you? Well, right from the very beginning, I was uh, subjected to sexual harassment and, and bullying and discrimina- sexual discrimination at my very first detachment. And we were there was never any type of training when we, when we were in training about what's going to happen in the real world. And I think things have changed. I don't know how much because we're still getting we're still getting complaints. I'm still getting people who are who are young service uh, men and women who are experiencing this in different police agencies so it hasn't gone away so that was uh and you know it was like i was called really sexually degrading names so i'm not sure if you can say it on the radio but it was referring to my female body parts and it was very degrading and when i asked them to stop the two the two people thought it was funny one of them was my supervisor so you can imagine how intimidating that must have been and it was to tell my supervisor who's in charge of my assessment don't call me those names and when it continued, I went to my detachment commander who laughed and said, I, I, maybe I enjoy the attention. So even though that the sexual harassment wasn't through my entire career, there was a pattern of behavior, a systemic bullying, systemic uh, sexual discrimination, abuse of power, and, and retribution for people who speak up. So when I was actually a victim of sexual assault in Selkirk, and I had just survived Tisdale, and how could I share what happened to me when I was just brutalized by the organization that was meant to protect me? So I never said anything. And I did what most survivors do. You just survive. You, you push it down deep in your, in your heart, your soul, your body. And you try to, you know, move on with your life. But guess what? Those kind of scars never heal. And everybody, I would encourage everyone to go to get some sort of professional help to help them deal with that. When the organization has failed to protect you, it really leaves you in a sense of, of limbo of where do you go? Yeah. Each, each woman I've talked to, whether it's been police services, the military, paramedics, firefighters, uh, each woman I've talked to has talked about the lasting effect of the abuse that they suffered. Sherry, what's your website? If people want to get in touch with you, what's the website? It's www.sherrybensonpadolchuk.com. Keep it simple. Uh, In New York City, the sex trafficking criminal trial of the former Jeffrey Epstein companion continues. 
And in Minneapolis, the murder trial for a 26-year police veteran, her name is Kim Potter, in the shooting death of Dante Wright, continues a young black man. Professor Jane Kirtley joins us, professor of media ethics and law, the director of the Silha Center for the study of media ethics and the law at the University of Minnesota. And we're very fortunate to be able to call on uh, Professor Kirtley uh, to speak to us on issues like this. Jane, thank you very much for taking the time. I'm not sure how to pronounce the first name of Ms. Maxwell. but these... I think it's Ghislaine. Is it Ghislaine? It right. Yep. Okay. I'll forget in five minutes. You'll have to remind me. Sex trafficking charges against her have taken a long time uh, to get to court. How do you assess the case against her? There have been numerous women have alleged Maxwell procured teenage girls for financier Jeffrey Epstein, who committed suicide while awaiting trial. And this week, a former boyfriend of a woman now in her 30s who alleges Epstein sexually assaulted her at his Florida mansion testified he drove girls to Epstein's home. How do you assess her and how do you assess this trial? Well, um, what I think is significant is the fact that the prosecution has already rested its case as of yesterday. Um, Most people expected the prosecution's case to go on for at least another week or two. And the fact that they've stopped now would seem to suggest that they're pretty confident that they have made their case. Um, I don't know whether that's true. I'm not on the jury. And as you know, this trial, like all trials in our federal criminal courts, is not being televised. We have media coverage, but it's basically the reporters relaying what they see and hear, and it's not the same as seeing it for yourself. Um, you know, I've, I've seen people suggest that um, Ms. Maxwell is, is, you know, basically the scapegoat for things that Epstein himself did. But it seems to me that the, by framing this as a sex trafficking trial and also moving minors across state lines and other similar federal laws, um, they have put together a pretty credible case. Um, I, but again, I don't know what the defense is going to say, and there's still discussion about whether Ms. Maxwell herself is going to choose to testify or not. Uh, so what do, you, what do you expect from the defense? Um, you know, I really don't know. I think it's going to be something on the line of, you know, I, I was there, but I wasn't complicit. I wasn't involved. I wasn't doing the things I'm being accused of doing. I think that's essentially what the argument's going to be, that she's being used as a surrogate for the now-deceased Mr. Epstein because there's so much uh, anger and resentment towards what Epstein reportedly did. The other, of course, wild card in all this is whether any of the supposed big names like Bill Clinton, Jay-Z, Prince Andrew, people like that, whether those names are going to come into play in any way. They really haven't up until now. Um, The concentration has been mostly on Ms. Maxwell and the deceased Mr. Epstein. Yeah, there are lots of open ends to this particular situation in this particular case. Now, the, the other story, the other case that's moving forward in where you live in Minneapolis, 26-year Minnesota police veteran Kim Potter on trial in the shooting death of a young black man, Dante Wright. Potter says she thought she was reaching for her taser when, in fact, she drew her police-issue pistol and shot and killed Dante Wright, and it was just a minor police uh, traffic stop. What's going on as far as that case is concerned? Well, that's a good question. This trial, like the one uh, we talked about earlier this year, the Chauvin trial um, in the death of um, Mr. Floyd, um, has been live-streamed, and we've been able to watch it. But I would say it has not garnered the same degree of attention locally as the Chauvin trial did. 
exactly why that is. I don't really know, but, I mean, it's it's there to be watched. If anybody wants to watch it, uh, Judge Chu, the presiding judge, had initially waffled about whether she was going to allow cameras, but she ultimately decided to do so. There was an unfortunate incident earlier in December where an individual went to the place that he thought she lived. It was a condo that she had previously sold, and basically was yelling and screaming and and uh, live streaming himself, demanding that cameras be allowed in the in the courtroom. She wasn't there; she didn't see it. Um, but I was afraid that that attempt to intimidate her might cause her to say no cameras. But to her credit, in my opinion, she didn't do that. Um, it's been a really hard trial to watch because the prosecution has been um, playing and replaying some extremely disturbing video footage. And I say disturbing not only because of the death of, of Mr. Wright, but also watching um, Officer Potter's reaction. It's It's been really difficult to see. Um, the trial um, so far is, is, is still ongoing. It ended a little early on Friday because we had a winter storm coming in here, and it's not going to be resumed until later next week. So right now we don't really know, other than the fact that the defense has asked for a mistrial on the grounds that uh, the prosecution is showing too much prejudicial um, footage. I think the reason that they are showing as much as they are is that we have sentencing guidelines in this state that might preclude a, a really lengthy sentence for Officer Potter, assuming she's convicted. And by t- including all of this footage, they may be trying to make the case that um, this was you know, really, really egregious conduct, not just a, a simple mistake. There's a, a lot of societal pressure associated with this particular case as well. Uh, how is that likely to uh, to play itself out? Well, of course, I can't get inside the head of the people that are on the jury. We've got a racially mis- mixed jury here, um, and you know we'll just kind of have to wait and see. I think the judges, both Judge Chauvin before and now Judge Chu, have been good about insulating the jurors. I mean, we don't know their identities. We only know um, their basic demographic information. And, um, you know, Judge Chauvin, or Judge Cahill in the Chauvin case, waited quite a while before he released the names of the jurors. So I think the judges truly can insulate the jurors as much as possible from external pressure. I'm hopeful that they will come to their conclusion based on the evidence they see in court. If I can just go back to the Maxwell case in the minute we have left, uh, Jane, she has, uh, and her supporters certainly have said, that they believe she's been scapegoated um, for Epstein's crimes. Do you think that that is a viable uh, defense to put forward? Wouldn't that be just a desperate Hail Mary pass by them? Well, I, I mean, I, I think, you know, that that that's what any good defense lawyer would probably argue. But I think the reality is that separate and apart from whatever uh, criminal activity Mr. Epstein himself may have been engaged in, the accusations against her in terms of trafficking and transporting a minor across state lines and so forth, um, those really stand alone, ultimately. Um, they're kind of pendant claims, I suppose, to what Epstein uh, is was accused of. But the bottom line is, I think she's going to stand and fall on her own conduct, not really what Epstein himself may have done. Yeah. Questionable conduct uh, by her as well. Professor uh, to Jane... Put it, to put it lightly, yes. <laughs> To put it mildly, yeah. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.